Marissa is really is a wonderful person who, when I started looking on Zoo's Victoria website, thinking, what are we going to do for Environment Day to celebrate? You know, people talk about climate change, talk about waste. There's a lot of really great programs being initiated to deal with some of the problems um, with larger populations and the changing nature of the world and the environment. But when I sort of thought about, often think about David Attenborough as an inspiration to me with um, uh, his doc documentaries on animals around the world, sometimes I feel quite sad because I feel in the future uh, it's only going to be through documentaries that we will see some of the animals that were there when I was a young girl but are now actually quietly disappearing from our earth. So I again looked to the zoos Victoria and I believe they are one of the leaders on uh, endangered species and how to rear them in an environment where we don't lose them totally. And Marissa is the senior scientist at uh, Zoos Victoria leading this challenge. So when I looked up on the website and did a profile on Marissa, I found that she's described as one of our superheroes by the Australian chief scientist, Dr. Alan Finkel, who was a member of our club. So it was pretty exciting to see that really had a high profile. And one of the, na the National Geographic's global wildlife talents. So and as I said, Dr. Marissa Parrott leads the Zoo Victoria programs on endangered species. She completed her PhD in zoology at Melbourne University and at her young age has co-authored 22 publications, which was, congratulations, quite an, an achievement. Zoo's Victoria is committed to fighting extinction both internationally uh, through projects <clears throat> through training local communities, and ones you'd be familiar with would be protecting the orangutan in Borneo. But more importantly, they are recognised as one of the leading um, expert bodies in Australia protecting some listed 21 Australian endangered species. So as I said, as part of our celebration of United Nations World Environment Day, I've invited Marissa to speak about the Zoo Victoria programs on endangered species. Thank you, Marissa. There we go. Thank you, Sharon. And thank you, everyone, for inviting me to speak today and for such a lovely lunch. So today I'd like to talk to you about our journey at Zoos Victoria, going from three zoos, Melbourne Zoo, Hillsville Sanctuary and Werribee Open Range Zoo, who did decades of very good conservation work, to being a united zoo-based conservation organisation at Zoos Victoria, fighting extinction for some of our most critically endangered species. Now, unfortunately, I can't show you the species today without PowerPoints, although I have my little Eastern Bard Bandicoot friend up here to help. But I have placed some information on the species I'll be talking about today on your tables. So if you'd like to have a look at some of the handouts and some of the pins there, please feel free to take them home for your families if you'd like to. And there'll be pictures of the animals I'm talking about today so you can see their beautiful little faces. But today I'm not actually going to start my presentation with one of the species that you see a picture of. It's not a species we have at Zoos Victoria. It's actually a tiny little bat called the Christmas Island Pipistrel, no bigger than your thumb. And scientists worked on this species for decades and they knew its population was crashing. They knew that the numbers were dwindling and they asked the government to help. 
and other organisations like mammal societies and bat societies asked if they could help as well, and Zoos Victoria asked to help. But it wasn't until August 2009 that we got the call saying, yes, please go in and help this beautiful little bat. And so within a few days, we mobilised scientists and veterinarians, husbandry managers and keepers, and we met the team on Christmas Island to help save the Christmas Island pipistrel. And the team was so excited because on the first night, they heard a beautiful little voice calling in the dark. And I actually have the little voice with me, so I'm going to play it for you right now. And they were excited because the next day they heard that same beautiful little voice and the next day. But after a few days, they realised that that was just the one little voice calling in the dark and no one ever called back to him. And after two weeks, that little voice stopped and it was never heard again. This is actually the last ever recording of a Christmas Island pipistrel. We didn't get there in time to save the Christmas Island pipistrel. We got there in time to document its extinction. And we said never again. It was heartbreaking. Never again would we be called in too late. Never again would we wait for someone to say, yes, you can go and help now. We were going to take everyone with us. And so on that day, we turned from those three zoos into our fighting extinction organization. And we made a commitment that no Victorian terrestrial vertebrate would go extinct on our watch, ever. Now we chose Victorian species because they're the ones in our own backyard where we can have the greatest impact. And we chose terrestrial vertebrates, your mammals and birds, reptiles and frogs, because that's where our expertise lies. But how do you ensure species don't go extinct when people don't really know about them? Well, we turned to science and we analysed every single species in Victoria. We looked for animals that had a small population size and a declining population trend. We looked for animals that were restricted in their distribution or fragmented, ones that had key threatening processes, like disease, chytridiomycosis in frogs, habitat loss, and introduced predators like cats and foxes. Importantly, we prioritise our species to look at which would go extinct in the next 10 years without additional help. And we came up with 16, and they're on your tables today. 16 Victorian species. Some of them we'd never seen before. Animals like the boar frog that no one had ever held in captivity, we now have an insurance population of them at Melbourne Zoo. Animals like the alpine she-oak skink and guthagus skink again had never been held and very little was known. So we have a preemptive strike happening up at Hillsville Sanctuary where we're working with them to determine their husbandry, their breeding, how to keep them and hibernate them and hopefully release them back to the wild if we're ever needed following a major catastrophic event like a fire. Other ones like the eastern barred bandicoot and the helmeted honey eater, which I'll talk to you a bit about today, we have held for a long time and these species would be extinct in the wild if not for the work of Zoos Victoria. Now to our 16 species, we also added another four regional species, animals that we had a long-term conservation program for and commitment to, that we weren't going to abandon just because they're on the wrong side of state lines. It's the northern and southern corroboree frog, the Tasmanian devil, and our one invertebrate to make it to the list, the Lord Howe Island stick insect. 
Now, most people don't know that behind the scenes, we also have what we call a watch list. Animals that didn't quite make the prioritization to be in what we call our fighting extinction 20 species, but ones that were declining and ones that were in trouble that we were watching just in case. And in fact, last year, the Plains Wanderer, one of the beautiful birds on that list, did trigger those priority interventions. And they were raised up, so we now have the Fighting Extinction 21. And for people who have noticed my T-shirt today, it's the Plains Wanderer that I'm wearing. We actually started a new breeding program just last year at Werribee Open Range Zoo. Now, we've had some really good success over the years. Since 1990, we've bred a large number of endangered species in captivity about 500 orange-bellied parrots, about 360 helmeted honeyeaters, nearly 700 eastern barred bandicoots, thousands of corroboree frogs, and over 13,000 Lord Howe Island stick insects. But for us, the measure of success is not what we're doing in captivity at all. It's actually what's happening in the wild. Our key objective is to have animals safe in the wild and work with our partners, and partners are something I'll be mentioning a lot today because they're so important in fighting extinction, working to keep those animals safe in the wild so they no longer need an insurance program. They don't need us. We can move on to the other species that do. So today I'm just going to tell you a bit about three of our species where we're thinking outside the box or outside the enclosure, as is the case with zoos, and tell you some of the interesting things that are happening with these species. The first is the eastern barred bandicoot, this little fellow in my hands right here. Now, eastern barred bandicoots are very sweet. They're small, they're shy, but they're amazingly tough. Someone this size could actually jump clean over my head. They're just lovely animals. They can survive in areas that get below freezing and in summer get well over 40 degrees. But the thing that I think is most interesting about the eastern barred bandicoot, being a reproductive biologist, is actually their breeding. If any of the ladies in this room were to be pregnant, it would be for nine months and you'd give birth to something the size of a watermelon. Eastern barred bandicoots are much smarter than we are. They're pregnant for 12.5 days. And they give birth to something the size of a tic-tac. So I think they're much smarter than us. Now, breeding so quickly, you'd expect us to have lots of them, particularly in their home range, which is out in Western Victoria. But unfortunately, bandicoots live in grasslands. And the Victorian grassland ecosystem is our most endangered ecosystem, with 99.9% .9 of our grasslands being destroyed for agriculture and housing. But luckily, as I said, the eastern barred bandicoot is tough. They learnt to live alongside us, particularly in places like Hamilton, where they had their last stronghold, living down creeks and in parks and even at the Hamilton tip. But unfortunately, the next main threat came. Introduce cats and foxes. Bandicoots cannot live with foxes. And as their numbers were crashing, the Eastern Barred Bandicoot Recovery Team collected as many as they could and took them to Woodlands Historic Park near Tullamarine. They weren't doing as well there. It was difficult to breed and manage them. So in 1990, those bandicoots came to Melbourne Zoo to start a long-term insurance program that's now been going for 28 years. Every single mainland eastern barred bandicoot can actually be traced back to that Melbourne Zoo breeding program. The species is listed as extinct in the wild on mainland Australia, but we still have about 1,500 of them, with partners like Mount Rothwell Biodiversity Interpretation Centre, Hamilton Community Parklands, managed by the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, or DELP, and Conservation Volunteers Australia, and out at Woodlands, near Tullamarine, with Parks Victoria, and again, Conservation Volunteers Australia. 
and of course in the insurance program. They are safe. And we know we can keep them behind fences away from foxes, so areas that are managed to ensure no foxes or cats. But fences sometimes aren't a long-term solution. They cost a lot of money, they take a lot of management, and they can fail. So recently we started looking with the recovery team about where could we actually have bandicoots in large areas fox-free. And the answer is islands. So working with Phillip Island Nature Parks, who are absolutely fantastic, we started looking at islands for bandicoots. And in 2015, we released Eastern Bard Bandicoots to Churchill Island as a trial to see how they'd go. Now we monitor all of our bandicoots and we have conditioned body scores for them. So when we monitor them, they might be a poor condition, an average or a good condition, or the new body class, Churchill Island, because they were so fat and happy and they did so well. Based on that, last October with Phillip Island Nature Parks, we released bandicoots back to the wild on Phillip Island, an area they hadn't been found before, but an area that's safe from foxes. So the species has gone back, which is so exciting. But how do we get them also back to their old historic home range in Western Victoria when there were still foxes? Well, the answer that we're hoping we'll have is guardian dogs. So guardian dogs like the Maremma sheepdog have been used for thousands of years overseas in places like Italy to guard domestic livestock from foxes, from wolves and from bears. In Australia, they've been used for decades to guard sheep and chickens from dingoes, dogs and foxes. And famously in Victoria, there's actually been a wildlife way of, use, pardon me, of using them, and that's to guard penguins from foxes. And if anyone's seen the movie Oddball, that's what that movie was about but they've never been used with a native mammal. So at Werribee Zoo, we've had nine dogs in training, learning to live alongside Eastern Bard bandicoots and bonding with sheep. You see, bandicoots are small, they're solitary, they're nocturnal, they're very fast. They're hard for dogs to bond with. But if they're a sheep, the dogs protect the sheep in the area, the bandicoots live in the area, and foxes stay away. Or at least that's what we hope our trial will say. Just two weeks ago, our first two dogs were deployed with our partners at Muramong to start protecting the area, and if we can show that fox numbers have decreased, we'll be introducing Eastern Bard Bandicoots back again to the wild. Now, another species where we're thinking outside the enclosure and one that's on your tables today is the helmeted honeyeater. This is Victoria's faunal bird emblem, and it's critically endangered. Back in the 1980s, there were as few as 32 helmeted honeyeaters left in the wild. Only 32. And in 1989, Hillsville Sanctuary joined the fight and has had a long-term insurance and breeding program ever since. We work with partners like DELP, Parks Victoria, and the amazing Friends of the Helmeted Honeyeater, doing work in the wild like revegetation and tree planting, supplementary feeding for the birds, and of course, a breed and release program. Now, breed and release can be very difficult. We manage the groups as what we call a metapopulation. So we release birds back to the wild, we bring birds in from the wild, and we make sure we manage their genetic diversity and maintain natural behaviours. But we also monitor all of our birds in the wild, and we found that over an 18-year period, we had only 51% of our birds surviving past six months to establish territories and breed. And that's just not good enough. And we thought, what is happening to these birds? The answer was avian predators. Animals like goshawks and falcons were finding our birds easy prey. So we started a new program. We call it Stranger Danger, or in scientific terms, Predator Aversion Training. 
and that's using birds in captivity's calls. So we're introducing our captive birds to calls from wild birds and making sure they understand that it means there's danger around. Our teams at Hillsville Sanctuary, who are experts in training, have trained goshawks that they can fly past the birds and we give them a fright. And they then associate something negative with the look and the sound and the movement of goshawks. So they know to hide. In the first year we did this, we went from a 51% success over that establishment period to 92%. The next year it was 83%, the next year 94% again. So we think stranger danger in association with our partners and supplementary feeding are going to have a real impact for our helmeted honey eaters. And in fact, just this year, we found for the first time we've had over 200 birds in the wild. Now 200 does not sound like much, but it's actually the largest number of helmeted honey eaters ever seen on record. So they are headed the right way, which is great. Now the next species I'd like to talk about is one that's very close to my heart. I've worked with them for a long time as well, and that's the Tasmanian devil. The Tassie devil is a beautiful animal, and one of the things that I like about the photos on your tables today is that they're not the devils with their teeth out and their mouth open trying to look scary, because the devils I know are actually very sweet, and they're shy, and they're gentle. They're lovely animals to work with. In fact, when I work with them in the wild, I handle them freely in my lap. But don't try this at home because the devil does have the strongest bite force per body weight of any known mammal and could bite your hand clean off. So look from a distance. Now the Tasmanian devil used to be found across mainland Australia as well. Until about 500 to 3,000 years ago, based on the fossil record, when it's believed an increase in the indigenous population and in dingoes with both direct hunting and competition caused them to go extinct. However, they had a stronghold in Tasmania. That was until white settlers came. So back in the early 1900s, a bounty was put on the heads of both Tasmanian tigers and Tasmanian devils because it was incorrectly believed that they were killing sheep, something that they now believe was actually attributed to domestic dogs. The Tasmanian tiger or thylacine was hunted to extinction. The Tasmanian devil was going the same way until about 1941 when scientists realised their numbers were crashing and that there'd been no difference in the attacks on sheep and the bounty was lifted and they were given protection. Their numbers increased again until about 1996 when a photogra photographer took the first photographs of what we now know as devil facial tumour disease on the northeast coast of Tasmania at Mount William, also known as Wakalina. Over the next few years, DFTD moved across Tasmania, and by the time the first government working group was formed in 2003, it was across a third of Tasmania and out of control. The disease now covers 97% of Tasmania. Only the very far northwest and southwest corners are free of the disease at this point, but it is starting to move in. It's a horrible disease. It's one of the only forms of transmissible cancer that we know of in the world. So it's an actual cancer cell being passed between devils. It's passed through biting, so either a devil with the disease bites someone else or another devil bites into a tumour while they're tussling for food or during mating. And that cell is then passed into the devil to grow. Now, while it's just a cancer cell acting like a skin graft, it actually acts quite a lot like a virus. It's turned off the molecular markers on the outside of the cell that allow the devil to see with its immune system what's just entered its body. So it enters undetected 
and it starts to grow. Devils are dead within generally three to six months and no more than 12 months after first showing, showing signs of the tumour. Now there's a lot of work being done with our partners to try and save the devils. They are Tasmania's biggest predator and they're highly important for the ecosystem. As devil numbers have crashed, so have the numbers of animals like eastern quolls and New Holland mice, possibly in relation to the devils decreasing and the number and behaviours of cats increasing. So what are we doing to save our devils? Well, there's a lot of lab work being done. And in fact, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment with Deakin Uni, the University of Tasmania and Save the Tassie Devil Program, is looking at whether there might be a change in the devil's genome, whether or not there's a growing disease resistance or tolerance to DFTD that we can start to use in management. The devils are being researched in the wild and their numbers are being watched carefully. But unfortunately, that work shows an 80 to 90% decrease in the number of devils in the wild. There's a vaccine that's being developed. We're not there yet. They've learned how to turn those external markers back on in the devil's cell and turn it into a vaccine, an injection, like you have with tetanus, for example. But it needs to be given by hand and it only lasts a few months before a booster is needed. So it's not ready for use in the wild yet. But there are some breakthroughs. The best conservation action we have for the devils at the moment is the insurance program. So back in 2005, the Save the Tassie Devil program and the Zoo and Aquarium Association started a new insurance program that now has around 700 devils. Hillsville Sanctuary joined at the very start and we're now one of two top or tier one breeding institutions that have the largest number of breeding devils. The other is our partner in New South Wales at Devil Ark who do amazing work. To date, we've bred over 134 devils, and I say over because it's currently the breeding season and we're not sure how many babies we have in pouches at the moment. At any given time, we hold between 40 and well over 100 devils behind the scenes at Hillsville Sanctuary, away from people and where they can maintain their natural behaviours. We raise awareness and advocacy for this beautiful animal, and we have the largest number of research projects of any captive institution. We look at things like diet, breeding, maintaining natural behaviour, maintaining natural brain sizes and morphology, and what kind of technology we can use to try and help devils in captivity and also in the wild. We released our first devils back to the wild in 2013 to a disease-free safe island called Mariah Island with the Save the Tassie Devil program. We released more devils just last year to help manage genetic diversity. In 2015, we also released devils to a new area at the Tasman Peninsula, which is disease-free and protected by fences. So there's a lot of work going on to try and save the devil. One of our innovative programs, and one that I've been lucky to work with, is working with the University of Sydney, the Carnivore Conservancy, and National Geographic to try and find out what devils are doing in the wild via critter cams. So these are little cameras that go onto special collars that have GPS signals, they have special drop-off mechanisms, and we get to see what this shy, nocturnal, cryptic, and often remote species is doing out in the wild. How are they interacting with each other and with disease? How are they hunting? How are they interacting with roads? Because road mortality is the second biggest killer of devils in Tasmania in the wild. And we can then look at these behaviours and make sure we're doing the best thing possible for our devils in captivity, both in our intensive enclosures where we do our breeding and also in what we call our managed environmental enclosures where we have large groups of devils that are hands-off and away from people. So there are ways that we can help the devil and we're certainly doing our best. 
Now, in the last few minutes of my talk, I'd also like to tell you about the other aspects of our conservation work, not the biological side, but the social side. Because if people don't love their animals, if people don't understand them and connect with them and want to act to help them, then we're not going to be able to save them. So we work with schools across Victoria to try and raise awareness of animals like Guthaga skinks and smoky mice. We put them on our trams and we have them down laneways. We have cards that we give out and we work through social and mainstream media to try and raise awareness of these amazing creatures. We also run a number of community campaigns to try and help protect our local wildlife and make Victoria the most wildlife state, wildlife friendly state in Australia. So we have a new campaign called Bubbles Not Balloons, which is encouraging people to use bubbles at their outdoor event and not use balloons which end up in our waterways and kill our water birds and our marine life. And in fact, just last week, Bunnings contacted us to say that they have cancelled the order of every balloon across Australia for their events and they're going to be using bubbles now. We work with groups overseas as well and we were just discussing gorillas on our table down here. So we work with a program called They're Calling On You. Recycling mobile phones, because we recycle coltan. This is a mineral used in all mobile phones that's often mined illegally in places like the Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, and other Central African areas. Not only do you lose habitat, but there are new roads put in which brings disease, and you have an increase in bushmeat trade, and it's driving our gorillas, our closest cousins, to extinction. So we're recycling coltan, and any money that we get from that, we're sending back to a group called Gorilla Doctors, who are protecting gorillas from injury and disease in the wild. Now, this is a program that is very close to my heart and also my liver, and apologies to my parents for bringing this up and reminding them, that I was in the Congo last year, which is the most amazing, beautiful country, and I got to see gorilla doctors, I got to see the gorillas, I took all the right medication, and I contracted the world's rarest form of malaria, and it nearly killed me. Interestingly, it's the same form of malaria that can infect gorillas and chimps. So I know what they went through, and I know how horrific it is. And I fully support the work of gorilla doctors that are protecting our animals from this horrible disease, as well as local communities. We also have international programs. We work with local communities in Papua New Guinea to protect tree, yeah, tree kangaroos. We work with ladies, 900 ladies in Kenya with our Beads for Wildlife program, selling beads so the money goes back to protect the community and the communities employing rangers to protect elephants and the world's most endangered zebra population, Grevy zebras. We have a long-term program with the Mabuaya Foundation, protecting the world's most endangered crocodile, the Philippines croc. Now, I could tell you more about all of these species, about the amazing work we've got on New Holland mice actually bringing lost genes back from an extinct population to try and save the species, about using man's best friend detection dogs to find plains wanderers and bore frogs in the wild, or about the new tunnel of love that we opened with our partners DELP and the Mount Hotham Alpine Resort Management Board just last month to connect populations of mountain pygmy possums separated by the Great Alpine Road to protect their genetics and increase their numbers. But I don't have time for that, so if you want to learn more about it and if you want to help us, you can go to www.zoo.org.au, check out those programs and learn more about these species, because together we can fight extinction. Thank you.